0: This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. My
1: basic interest is uh, in uh, the study of diplomacy and uh, in Russia. But I have a sideline in theory and methods, and uh, I'm going to present a paper today on some work I did with my wife, who is a sociologist and criminologist. And the topic that you wanted to be to talk about are living with situatedness. So <clears throat> the precondition we're talking about here is that is a is a philosophy of science that we are thinking about the world as being at one with our minds. If you think that there is an Archimedean point outside of the social world from which you can see what's going on, so that you are detached from what you can see, then you don't have to worry all that much about where your own situatedness is. Chop the world into, you can use the language of variables, for example, and independent variables, and you can sit back, you can quantify the thing, and you can come up with results. And that's fine. I mean, that's one way of doing science. This is not the way of doing science that I'm going to talk, to, talk about today. I'm going to talk about kinds of social science where the precondition is that we are producing our own data. And this is this is old hat. I mean, since DILTI, since here, it's particular DILTI. you particularly since DILTI, the idea that the, the human sciences, these humanities and social sciences, however you want to phrase this, make up a separate realm, and that is a separate realm among other things because self-reflectiveness comes into it, and because our mind is part of the world that we are studying, makes it different. And there are a number of approaches. To how we should look at this, how to do it. Anthropology is a rich literature. I'm going to tip my hat to that and draw on that in, the in a minute. Um, Hermeneutics is a tradition which specializes in this, he tries to understand the circle of learning between a certain person and the environment while seeing the person as part of that environment. But, In ameneutics, one is quite often thinking about the self simply as something that is in the circle and doesn't come to the interaction and the study with any particular advantage. So what we're doing in this paper is that we are looking at how to situate ourselves as researchers in three different phases of the research process. These would be the pre-field phase, questions about why do we study what we study? Why do we tend to use the particular tools that we use in order to study it? Um, What kind of stuff do we bring with us into this faith? Why is it, for example, that so few males study feminism? I think we know why. Why do so many Russians study Russian foreign policy? I think we know that one as well. Why do so many liberals study the UN? And the list goes on and on and on and on. If you have a look at people studying an erection, it will be not always, but there may be specific reasons why people would choose to study an erection. And those reasons are relevant for what they are seeing when they're studying. The baggage that they bring to the job impingers on how the job is being done. That's the pre-field phase. Then there is a field phase that I'm going to dwell on. That's where my presentation will be the most method, as it were. By method, I simply mean production of data. method is a means to produce data. Questions to do with how we hook up to the world are not questions of method. They are questions of methodology, which is very important. Um, and in the field, we have a rich literature about field work. We have rich literature about uh, interviews. And each social science tends to fetishize one of these techniques. With anthropologists, its observation with sociologists is interviews. It's and then the third thing I want to talk to you about is situatedness when it comes to writing the texts, the third phase of the research. mean, research isn't done before the results are being written up. That is regardless of whether you need to write a thesis or not. You have to write up the damn thing. And then the question is how do you situate yourself in relation to that? It's not always. I also note that the answer that although these are three different sort of phases of a temporal sequence. There is also a recursivity between these three phases. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've been doing research uh, for 30, 35 years and I have yet to have a project where I started by choosing a thing, then I did the thing and I wrote up. That's not the way it works. You start with a general idea of what you're looking at. You start looking at it and you change what you're after. You start writing and you decide that you have to change the problematique because the writing doesn't really fit up. So there is a recursive element to the research project. There is a reason why we always write the introduction last. I open a parenthesis here in order to make a remark about what we do more and more, applying for money to do research. Applications imply that we already know what we're going to find. So there is a sense in which, if you can write an application to get money for research, you don't need to do the research because you already know what you're going to find. So there is a paradox in all sort of application. So what I'm telling myself when I'm writing applications is, this is an instrumental exercise. I'm applying to get money. Now, what I'm going to do when I get the money is something entirely different. And I've gotten away with it so far. Close that so in illuminating this, the messrs and I found out that it would be good to draw on a different literatures that have specialized in situatedness over the years. So in order to discuss the pre-field phase, which we called autobiography, we draw on family's work, particularly uh, on, uh, on the work uh, of uh, people like Doris Smith, when it comes to the field phase, we draw on the Gestalt tradition. Does anyone have a clue what the Gestalt tradition is? I'm not. I'll be coming back to it. I mean, it's, it's one of these cases. John Ray, who was a professor of political theory in this in this place, um, he specialized in writing books about how humanity comes up with stuff and then forgets the insights. And you know, Gestalt tradition is an example of so this. Welcome back to it. And the third phase, you know, the people who have been looking most at self-situatedness in texts and how the self is tied up with the text would be post-structuralists. So I'm going to call them those when I present that part of the research. So <coughs> let me start, in earnest, by, uh, by looking at autobiography, you know, autobiographical situation. You have an two. Although everybody started his life by inserting himself into the human world through action and speech, nobody is the author or producer of his own life story. In other words, the stories, results of action and speech, reveal an agent, but this agent is not an author or producer. Somebody began it and is its subject in the twofold sense of the word, namely its actor and sufferer, but nobody is its author. Here, and our on her old friend and teacher, <coughs> So, what feminists have been doing basically in this regard is to think structurally. The argument goes something like this, and this is Sandra Harding's version of an argument that is quite often used by feminists. Social phenomena. Are products of structures. Structures cannot be seen, but they can be observed. They can be be induced through their effects. Now, humans are products of structures because they are social material. So, humans, subjects, may count as something that is shaped by social structures. This means that one way of finding out about a structure is to observe humans. I am a human, which means that if I look at how I was formed, how I was shaped in my subjectivity, then I can use that in order to trace back to what the structure that engendered me as a plan was. That's the thing. So the most typical method coming out of this is so-called memory work. Feminists sit down and look at how the social structure shaped them into the specific gender subjects that they are. And the interest for us in this is that uh, you will find, in this way, you will find a specific traits, specific stuff from the past that shaped you and gave you certain. It does not necessarily have to be uh, gender that is of the essence here. You could do the same kind of thing with a number of other uh, other stuff. Um, so you can say, for example, let me uh, let me use an example. Let me use the example of uh, studying the Roma gypsies. Why would you study the world? Aron, you're doing work on Russia and Eastern Europe. Roma all over the place. Some people study them, some don't. Now, why? If the terms of phenomenon is how Roma were exterminated in Nazi concentration camps, for example, it is directly relevant to ask oneself why this choice has been made. Why do I want to study that? Is is it because of some ethnic or social attachment to Roman? If so, (coughs) the utmost autobiographical question is distance to group attachment, and the memories to concentrate are those that pertain to these aspects of one's own identity. That would be one possibility, that one is of of, of Roman (coughs) stock, or one has some kind of close affinity to this group. (coughs) <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> but there are other possibilities. It could be, for example, because one feels that one wants to study the Roman, study the Roman experience with the Holocaust, because other stories, such as the story of Israel's story about the, the Jewish Holocaust, have repressed the story about the Roman Holocaust. If this is the case, then the utmost autobiographical question becomes questions of subalternance and fairness. And the key autobiographical question is what it is about one's own socialization. Is it a Scandinavian inclusive national culture? Is it a Christian universalistic upbringing that has inculcated such a universalistic and fairness-minded way of looking at the world? So that's a second possibility. And a third possibility may be that the choice of Roma as an object of study is due to childhood fascination with fabulous. I know one person studying the Roma, she's an anthropologist, and the reason why she does it is that as a child she thought that the idea of moving from place to place was just absolutely fantastic. And when she had the chance of, of doing, starting her anthropological career, she did first a master's degree and then a doctoral degree because she wanted to try this life from moving from place to place. So a romantic project. Here we are at three different, very different ways into the field of research. And these ways will shape the research process. A reader alerted to autobiographical institutions would ask at this point exactly why Cecily, my wife and I, are choosing Rome as an example. Well, that is because Cecily has a Roman great grandfather and sometimes asked in shops to leave because uh, <laughs> it happened earlier this summer. Plus she was asked whether she was from Hungary and then so she was told to leave. This was in Cyprus. So, I'm wondering what the heck is going on? And it turned out that three kilometres from the shop, the sunglasses shop that we were visiting, there was a Roma village. Right? So it is no coincidence that we use the Roma as an example. It's also an example of how important altern- ethnography can illuminate how you react to this kind of stuff. Right? <coughs> so this is fair enough. Another example, I mean this is the object of study. Another example that we use in the paper is my own upbringing uh, and the fact that I happen to be a Foucauldian. Now, at first blush, there is nothing in my background that would suggest that I should become a Foucauldian. I'm an upper-middle-class white bloke from Scandinavia. There is nothing so bold about my life that would suggest that I should end up being a student of Foucauld. And yet, when I read Foucault, I immediately knew that I had found my guy. I just knew. And why was that? Well, Foucault's specialty is to demonstrate how power comes from everywhere, how it's inscribed on the body, and how you yourself tend to collaborate in your own suppression. And as it happened, I had a nurse when I was three years old who used me as a sexual plaything, and the way she did what she did to let me make me collaborate on this was to let her suck my t- let her suck my tits her tits. So I was part of uh, of my own repression as And you know, I never wondered why I'm a because I knew immediately when I read this stuff that ah, this is how power works. And why was that? Because I had a bodily experience with this kind of now, why is this important for research? It is important for research because if you start, for example, generalizing this kind of human experience, you're up the creek. A lot of people do not have this kind of experience. And you can start sort of seeing into situations where power may work in much more subtle ways, you can start assuming this kind of stuff. So this kind of socialization, which has nothing to do with, or nothing to do with, which is not directly the result of the standard suspects of class, gender, and ethnicity, will explain. You could have other examples I and mean, people <coughs> studying stuff because, for example, they would have something that would have a functional a dysfunction, for example. Say So we assert that having a look at where you're coming from and having an insight in what sort of stuff you are looking for and how you're looking for it may better the research because you become more alert to what's actually going on when you're doing the research. So that's the auto-ethnographic phase, as right? it were, situating yourself pre-field. Then there is the question of <coughs> field situations. And that is all about <coughs> sorry <coughs> that is all about how You come across in the field. Let me take an example. I have a colleague, the Russianist, and he has long hair. He's had that long hair since the 70s. He's a 1968 long hair. It's it's long hair that's a political statement. It's not long hair as a sexual way of getting laid, It's, it's, it's a political one. And in Russia, when you do research, in the Soviet Union particularly, having long hair is not particularly easy, because you are considered to be, well, the political statement that is made is not a precept. There are very few people where you sort of fit in with this kind of thing. The solution to this was to use a short hair wing. So you walk around with this hair in a short hair wing. Pretty smart stuff. and why did he do that? Because the sort of answers and the sort of people who would talk to him and the sort of answers he would get to questions and the sort of situations he would get to observe would be a function, among other things, of how he came across as a This is fairly simple in international relations. If you are all of uh, five foot three, you're a woman, you weigh about three pounds, and you come from, uh, from uh, a an Indian background, this and you interview a, a colonel in the American arm, will you get the same answers if you are about a hundred stone, a male, and dressed in a T-shirt? Then The answer is an obvious no. I mean, I've been around military people enough and I've done my conscription, so I know that this makes a difference. in Thailand, so the approach of the military people in interview will change when they are speaking to someone that they share. It's not just a gender thing, it's also a thing about expectations, about knowing specifically about religion. And I've seen this happen. Uh, I have a colleague, an American woman whose name shall not be mentioned, who has a high-pitched voice. And you know, this is one of the things that she works with in the field situation. How do you interview? Military ranked officers when you have a high-pitched voice. I mean, you have to think about how you can do that. So that you know, you don't come across as as not fitting in. And this goes for all possible kinds of settings. Right? That your persona would be one of the things that determines what kind of information you get out. And one way of thinking about this is with the gestalt psychologists. <coughs> now, Gestalt, as you can hear from German, is a German word, Goethe used it. Uh, it's, it's a, common day, it's a it's an everyday word, it was an everyday word in German in the late 1800s, and it means something like the whole Rohlgeboude. Now, what we call the Gestalt tradition refers to a number of experimental psychologists working at the end of the 1800s, people like von and These people, psychology was not a separate domain at that stage. They worked at the interest of physiology, which was a discipline, and psychology. And what they were in, they were all, all inspired by Husserl. So if is the philosophical found the gestalt And And what they were interested in was active cognition. You know, how our senses pick out stuff. What is, what is it to view something and see something? And the key thing was that one of the ways that we see things, one of the ways that we produce what we see, I mean cognition is an active thing, it's not a passive thing, it's an active thing. One of the, of the ways we do this is that we see in holes, and when we start holes.
0: It's not only
1: that we see what we expect to see out of earlier experiences, which is relevant here. This is one thing that we come across and, uh, social psychologists um, um, his name now escapes me, will come back. He did experimental work in the 50s on uh, on how social experience and social background experience, condition, vision, um, the name will come back to uh, How many have watched the last but one episode of Breaking Bad? Not everybody. Well, I'll give you the example afterwards. Stanley Milger, is the guy I think. Stanley Milgram did things like, go um, on, he went into the US equivalent of the tube station, and he would place, he would stage two 16-year-old boys to stand stock still at the platform, and then he would have a 60-year-old boy attacking. Then he would interview people at the other side of the tracks and ask them what they had seen. Now, what do you think the answer is? And I was trying to picture it, so it was two 16 year old boys and then a 6 year man Here are the tracks. Okay. So there is no interaction between the platform. Yeah. Your side of the platform is staged. So Milgram puts two 16 year old boys there and they stand stock still. And then he has a 60 year old man attacking them and mumming. <laughs> at, this, at this side of the platform, life goes on. So people watch this. Up oh, close. So well, could it be What did they see? Do that they maybe thought that the two boys had misbehaved and would be told off by the older man? Not only that, they also saw two 16 year old boys attacking the 16 year old man. And you can do this the next time you meet a child. Take a cup, place it in front of the child with the handle away from the child, ask them to draw a cup. And I bet you 10 to 1, well, I bet you 50 to 1, that they will draw cup with a handle. So you don't draw what you see; you draw what you expect to see. Okay? Which is a cup, by definition, has a handle. Now, where does the Gestalt tradition come into this? They were the ones that were able to show experimentally that we actually see in holes. And one of the first experiments was they didn't have have uh, have uh, sort of, uh, have. Um, Uh, what do you call it, neon signs in those days. And it wasn't the neon sign they used, the equivalent is a neon sign. You know these neon signs where where things will light up and then will sort of spread out as a wave, right? I mean, we experience that as a wave. Well, of course, it is no such thing. It is simply lights, bulbs coming on in rapid succession, right? I mean, animated so same kind of way. The whole point here is that we see that as movement. There is no movement involved, but we see it as movement. Why is that? Because that is the Gestalt. You know, we don't see each boom, um, boom, um, boom, um, boom um point, we take in the whole thing. That was an early breakthrough for, for Gestalt. Now, the transposition of that from, from pure and laboratory research and more sort of in situ research was a man called Wolfgang Kohler, who was one of the first persons in the world doing research on primates. And what he was primates, and what he was interested in was how do primates solve problems? So he would do things like putting up boxes with a box in the middle and you know, a stick next to it. So if the the of ape that was tested was able to stand on the box and use the uh, the stick, he could get the banana and the, and the best one of this one was, you know, he would close them in in a in, in in a cage with a glass wall. Then there was a little hatch. And you know, if you understood that you could sort of get the hatch away, you could be around the glass wall and you can get through the food that's the the glass. And this research involved having these apes do these things, and you know, the apes invariably went ape as it were. Uh, they became frustrated and started smashing things. It's not gender this kind of problem solving, you know. Uh, I can think of, the, of times when I've sort of become physically violent to inventory because I couldn't solve problems, you know, <laughs> the one reaction that we can also find in ourselves, right? So you know, they would smash the stuff that they would need to solve the deal, right? But the key point about the research was that once the ape understood how to do it, it was not this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing. It was what in good English is called an epiphany. In a blink of insight, they understood this is the way to do it. And boom, around the glass wall, into the food. So then Curdo used his two-year-old daughter in the same experiment. And the same thing happened. You know? She was standing there, and then suddenly she understood how to do it, and in one fell swoop, boom, right? So, you know, both the insight and the reaction to it was one package of movement, or one package of insight. And then he he did the same thing to his dog, which was absolutely terrible, because the dog was just standing there, and just, you know, totally paralyzed by its sense of smell. You know, it just didn't move. So, anyhow, the point here is a general point that we we our 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 sensory setup, as were, our weapon, is geared towards taking in holes. Now this is very important. Because the Gestalt the psychologists then went on went, went, went on to apply this to stuff that is directly relevant to what we're talking about here. Let me give you an example of how a gestalt uh, psychologist by the name Gordon Wheeler is writing about this. He's trying to explain how gestalt can look at what they call figure and ground. I mean you foreground something it means you put something else in there. The most famous gestalt drawing ever may be that that, that woman where you either see an old woman with a crooked nose or you see a woman that looks like an Art Nouveau from the 1930s, spreading out. Uh, you don't know this point. This so, that, the whole thing, the whole point there is that either you see it or you don't see it. And you see the Gestalt, you don't see anything in between, you see, suddenly you see it and you see it either as one or the other. So, the, 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 the field, what you see in the one is background in the other and vice versa. The general thing is, when you're in the field, how do you how do things bring out what you and do things become figure and not ground? And I thought I would take an example from the literal field in order to to, to to demonstrate what they mean by this. Here is Golden Wheeler. For example, take the figure of a haystack, within or against the gestalt or map na- of the wall landscape. According to the subject's goal of the movement survival, conquests, escape, reconnaissance, forage, rest, and so forth. The same haystack may be perceived as a threat or shelter, protection or obstacle. And more than this, its value and even identity will be perceived differently according to where and how it lies in relation to other perceived objects on the map. Lines of sight, battle lines, distance, and so on. on. Thus perceived and located, the haystack becomes part of the changed and organized background or ground or map in relation to which new figures may arise. You see why this is directly relevant for anyone being in the field, observing, doing interviews, whatever, because what you see, you see something you You can see it. Some people will see some things and other people will see other things. And this is, again, a question of no. class, gender, ethnicity, ethnicity, etc. So I'm not going to go in. I'll be happy to share the paper, by the way. So, uh, so, so, just, just tell me if you want it. Uh, just give another, yet another example of, of, of an insight that the Gestalt tradition can offer us, can help us in doing research. Which is that they come up with a lot of what they call contact mechanisms, meaning that there are ways, there are modes of perceiving. One of them would be confidence, meaning that people will will try to create. A good atmosphere. Would sort would of float together with their informants, and we all have, we've all met people like that. who so are sort of very easy to talk to because they are almost not there. They are sort of making social scenes. We watched the Woody Allen and Zelig. He's the, he's the ultimate in, in, in this kind of thing. He becomes physically the person he's talking to. That's confidence me. Two rivers running together, confidence. So what, why is this relevant? Well, because my wife is confident, so when she does an interview, she goes in and she tries to make this ambience. The problem is, that's a very good way of getting somebody to talk. But it's also hampering, because how do you ask the hard questions? Questions that you expect to destroy the good atmosphere, but you don't. So the way she does this is that when she goes in to do an interview, she has have a list of the hard questions she knows will come up, and she's mentally taking them off, because she knows that if she doesn't bring them list she will not bring herself to asking the questions. Now my problem is more projection, I I have a hard, well, it's a challenge not to think that people say this, that, and the other thing, I will read too much into it, and I think, because it reminds me of somebody else, I won't listen to what being said, which is makes for very bad social science because you want to just find the same things over and over and over again, although they're actually different. This has to do with my own. So, what do you do when you see that kind of, when you have that kind of problem? Well, what you do is, someone says something, and you feel that you're about to say, "Oh no, not that again." You say, oh, "Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is a new sort situation. It Maybe it's something else." And you ask those extra two or three questions to ascertain whether that is the case, instead of just cutting off and doing it. Patient. This is directly relevant for interview <coughs> um, Let me jump to uh, the third way, third phase for for situations, which is text. James Joyce once said that uh, the writer should be in his creation as God in his, mainly hidden. You should not leave traces of yourself as an as 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 Social scientist in the book is the lesson for us. Anthropologists, post-structural anthropologists, I've been looking into this for years now. The best examples of the book where this is being done is a book by Paul Rabinow called Fieldwork, Uh, Notes on Fieldwork in Morocco. Do Do we have any anthropologists in the room? The notes on fieldwork on Morocco is all about how Paul Rabinov feels about being in Morocco Mm -hmm. and talking to the Moroccans and all his anxieties and angst about uh, messing up and uh, what he can do wrong and how he steps uh, into the wrong kind of field. And at the end of the book, we know a lot about Paul Rabinov. We don't know so much about Moroccans. Moroccans somehow aren't there. That is a critique, of course. But the exercise as such is very important. What is the writing process doing? Where do you place yourself in the writing process? Some of us will flag in the preface to what we write, be that an article or a book, where we were situated in the research. And if we don't, it may easily come across as cheating. I'll give you an example. Pierre Bourdieu's doctoral thesis. I don't know whether you've read it. It's called Le Bal bon de Célibataire, Bachelor And it's about unmarried males in Biala, where he came from, that sort of, he goes to a dance and these males in slightly sort of old fashioned suits, they don't get to dance, they are wallpaper or wallflowers, right? And then he uses this to, to, to make the whole
0: analysis of why
1: kids go to hell in a handbook in Bial and other sort of settings. Now, one thing he doesn't mention is who his main informant was for this project. His mother. He used his mother to get the background story on the families, and when they were married, and when they went married, and when the, dog, when the daughters left, and when the sons decided to stay, etc. So without the mother, no research. This is not good anthropology. You're not supposed to do that. You're, to, you're not supposed to use your mother as your
0: main informant. And
1: nowhere in the book, because he mentioned that he did this. I forgive him because the book is a good book, but it would have been even better if he had situated himself and come clean on this. We would have known where he got his data from. It makes a difference to how we read the book and to the validity of the data. I write. It's not that, that he disqualifies himself, but it would have been an even better book to get had And these things make a difference. So, you know, how do you support? Of Put yourself into that text. If you put yourself too much in, nobody's interested because we're not really interested in the social scientists. We're interested in what kind of insight the social scientists can bring to society. But as I started by saying, we must not forget the feminist insight that if humans are products of social relations, then looking into yourself can tell you something important about the social relation that's for you. So, in conclusion. It's important to situate yourself. There are two ways of doing it in terms of philosophy of science, in terms of methodology. One way is what you can call reflexively. But most panelists are thinking, OK, let me look at how the social situation changes me. But the other way is an analytical way, Say, let me think about how I change the social setting that I have studied. So, you know, if we think of George Herbert Mead, you he can think of the self by the I, which is how I feel, or me, which is what others see. Then you can think of sort of doing this method in two directions, as a way. You situate yourself by thinking, how am I perceived by the others, or how do I perceive the others, and what do the others do to me? And reflexivists hold the field when it comes to situatedness. But I would argue that there are other traditions The Weberian condition, for example, in drawing up ideal types actually starts with situating yourself and asking which are the values I bring to building this ideal type. Weber is very clear about that. Ideal types are based on value. They're based on And Observing what's going on in this sense is because you make a value commitment, you can find out whether that value commitment is relevant to a certain situation. Or a Foucauldian perspective, Foucault is very much situated in what he's doing. I mean, he had severe psychic challenges as a very young man, and he went on to study the asylum. He was uh, a salomatopoetic homosexual, and he went on to study the homosexuality. Um, he is definitely situated in what he's doing, but nowhere. Does he talk about what's happening to him as he does himself? As he does himself. No i read my Fuker. I haven't found one place in which he uses what is happening inside himself. And He does reflexive stuff on this. It's all about the analytical purchase that his background can bring to us. So, you know, his situatedness lies just below itself. It's never allowed to come out a figure, I think. So these are two different ways of doing it, and the wife and I have been discussing this back and forth because she's more of a reflexivist and I'm more of an analyticist, but we decided that we couldn't end, it could have been elegant to end the article by saying, okay, here are two ways of doing it and here we have two representatives, for two sports stuff. So but we decided that we wouldn't really sort of want to come so heavily down on one way of doing situations, because we both simulate in both ways. So, in order for research to be relational, there is a case for trying to to combine these two approaches and to try to get relation both from the working social, social social scientists' perspective and from what you think is the perspective of the world. Thank you.
0: Great, thanks very much. Um... The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfil two broad objectives to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field. And through our program of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash events.